Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Several years ago, Psychology Today did a survey of its readers, and they asked the question, what is happiness and how do we obtain it? One man responded like this, he said, I don't know if I'm happy. I filled out the questionnaire, I think I'm happy, please verify. How's that for confidence? It's interesting in the survey that uh, very few factors correlated directly with happiness. Wealth, for example, did not correlate with happiness. There were wealthy people who were very happy and wealthy people who were miserable. There were poor people who were happy and poor people who were miserable. Pleasure did not correlate with happiness, which is the consistent testimony of Scripture. You can chase after pleasure, but in the end, it can't make you happy. Happiness is tied directly to your circumstances over which you do not have control. On the other hand, Jesus promises us that you can be blessed. You can pursue God's blessing, you can pursue God's best, and if you pursue it, God will give it to you. Remember, as we began our study of the Sermon on the Mount last week, we looked at this concept of blessing and recognized that it doesn't mean happiness. It means something far richer, far deeper, and I I gave you an illustration From the island of Cyprus, the island was known as a blessed place. The people consider themselves blessed from the Greek word and concept makarios, meaning they never had to leave the island. Everything that they needed for a rich and full and satisfying life was contained on the island. They were self-contained. That's what it means to be blessed by God. You don't need anything else and you're not constantly longing and searching for something else to fill you up. And Jesus says, you can be blessed. Here's how. And he gives a synthesis of it in the Beatitudes. I want you to read with me again, beginning in verse 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We noticed last week that there are eight blessings, but the eight blessings don't represent eight different people, but one person who trusts God's value system. This is the person whose life will be blessed. And I want us to begin this morning by going back, jumping right back into the middle, chapter 5, verse 7, where Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Remember that Jesus is speaking to almost entirely a Jewish audience, and their scripture is entirely the Old Testament. There is no New Testament written yet. So he's pulling them back into an Old Testament concept of mercy, which is closely related to God's grace what he gives us, 
that we don't deserve and God's loving kindness or his loyal love. He's always faithful to us. It's also related most closely to God's compassion and compassion in the Old Testament Hebrew mindset was a word that literally came from a woman's womb. Compassion was, uh, in a sense, the seat or the heart of emotion. It was found right down here. They didn't think of your heart being the place where emotion came from. But right down here, when you really feel something deeply, you feel it right here. When you're really anxious about something, you feel it right here. You feel it in the center of your being. Compassion was this deeply rooted emotion, closely related to mercy and pity. You saw someone who was in need and you felt anguish for that person, anguish that could almost double you over. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a commentary on Sermon on the Mount, and he said this, Grace is associated with men in their sin, mercy with men in their misery. Mercy is a sense of pity and a desire to relieve suffering. That is, mercy is this feeling deep within that moves you not just to feel, but also to act on someone else's behalf. You see a person who needs pity, a person who's vulnerable, and you could just pass by that vulnerability And just say, I'm not going to step in. Or you could take advantage of their vulnerability and take from them. Or you could step in and meet that need. That's mercy. Probably the greatest illustration that Jesus gave of it is the story of the Good Samaritan. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10 and verse 33. Remember the story Jesus is giving. It's a really common setting. It's very well known. He's talking about the road that went up from the mountain ridge where Jerusalem was down into the Rift Valley where Jericho was, a very steep and narrow winding pathway, and there were always thieves along that road. So you you travel down that road, you were always at risk. Well, a man had been journeying down that road, and the bandits fell upon him, and they beat him almost to the point of death. They took everything that he owned, stripped him bare, and he's laying bleeding on the side of the road, helpless. And a priest comes by and the listeners think, all right, a priest, our hero. But the priest moves to the other side of the road. And then a Levite, there's our hero. No, he moves to the other side of the road. But then a Samaritan comes by and notice his response. It says, a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He felt something stir deep within him. He saw that other person helpless and in misery, and he emotionally entered into that misery. He shared it with him emotionally. He felt compassion for him. And he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast. So he walked and brought him down that steep pathway, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him now, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. I will meet his needs." That's mercy. It's not just a feeling, but it's the feeling that moves you to act on behalf of the other person. See, as far as we know, the priest may have walked by and the priest may have felt something deep down inside and said, oh, that man is so pitiful. He really needs help. I hope someone comes to help him. But not me. That's not mercy. Mercy is the lesson that God was trying to teach Jonah. If you've read Jonah recently, you should go back and read Jonah. It's a great story. It takes you about five minutes, and it just, boy, it just drives deep, deeply into your heart. It's so convicting. As Jonah is told to go and preach to his enemies, he's go, told to go and preach to the Ninevites, who were Assyrian, 
who had taken advantage of the Israelites. Sworn enemies. And God says, go and preach to them because they're wicked. Jonah says, I know, but I want you to preach to them that if they don't repent, that they will be destroyed. And Jonah thinks to himself, I know God. I'm a prophet. (laughs) God is compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger. He longs to turn away his wrath from those who repent. I don't want them to repent. I want them to be destroyed. So remember, he runs away from God, which never works. (laughs) God chases him down. He finds him on the boat. He's floating in the sea, swallows him with a fish, spits him up, says, second chance, bud. Go to Nineveh. So begrudgingly, Jonah goes and he obeys the will of God. He's told to walk throughout the city and we're told it's a three days walk and Jonah goes one day. And that's enough. He goes and he preaches one day. He says, repent or you'll be destroyed. And then he goes up on a mountain hoping that they will not repent, but they do. They begin to change. They believe God. And their hearts are broken. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They proclaim a fast. And Jonah's really, really upset and angry about that because then they won't be destroyed. He's suspicious God might spare them. And he's angry about that. So he sits on the mountaintop and watches, hoping God will bring down fire and brimstone. And he's angry. He's angry and he's miserable because it's hot and dusty and dirty. So God brings a plant to shade him. And he loves that plant. (laughs) That's a great plant. And he's enjoying the shade that he receives from the plant. But then God sends the sun and it bakes the plant and it withers. As soon as it came up, it's gone. And then Jonah's angry again. And God comes to him and he says, Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? He says, darn right I do. Don't ask me to tell you why, but I'm angry, God. And I'm justified in my anger. God says, really? Let's, let's chat about that. You see, you, you had compassion on a plant. You loved a plant. You didn't make it grow. You didn't make it burn up. You had nothing to do with it, but you loved it. It's a plant, Jonah. Shouldn't I love people who I made in my image? Remember, Jonah, they don't have all the information that you have. They don't know me like you know me. They don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I reveal myself to them so they can know me and worship me? Shouldn't Shouldn't I have compassion on them? Besides the fact there's lots of animals running around in there. I mean, it's a nice little sarcastic jab right at the end. Jonah, you're not like me. And your whole nation is not like me. That's why Jonah wrote the story. But I want you to be like me. I want you to see people as they are. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount there's actually a a flow of thought. And it starts here. It starts with being poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They acknowledge, I have nothing that I can give to God. Instead, I come with empty hands. And these empty hands are actually stained by sin. Sermon on the Mount begins by forcing us to see ourselves as we really are, as God sees us. And when that happens, you know, it changes our whole perspective on the world. And it makes us even see others differently. Oh, I need mercy so deeply. I need God's pity. I guess others need it as well. Transforms our whole perspective. You know, that really is, is, that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel is the greatest illustration of mercy and pity. I want you to turn with me to to, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 5. Paul's brief description here of the gospel in Romans, chapter 5. 
verse 6. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Does anyone here like to identify themselves as helpless? No. I'm strong and I'm competent. Not helpless. What's the gospel? While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God didn't look down upon us and say, wow, that's a really good group of folks. They're so good, in fact, that I should save them, rescue them. No, he looked down and said, boy, those folks, creatures that I made in my image, they've really made a mess of themselves and a mess of the world. They're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and they don't even know it. I moved to have mercy upon them. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still the enemies of God and running from God, he showed mercy upon us when we had nothing to offer him. He gave us Jesus. A wonderful free gift that you just reach out by faith and say, I accept God. Thank you for removing my debt of sin as far as the east is from the west, for giving me life that is eternal, that lasts forever with you so that I will never die. That's mercy. That's grace. That's compassion. That's the loyal love of God toward his creatures. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to be like my heavenly father. And there's a reward attached to it. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Have you ever wondered to yourself, so is Jesus then saying, if I don't give mercy, I won't receive mercy? Someday I'm going to stand before you, God, and you're going to say, well, it's wonderful that you believed in the free gift of eternal life through my son, Jesus, but actually it's not just a free gift. You have to believe and you have to show mercy. Otherwise, no heaven for you. Okay? <laughs> you don't get it. You didn't give mercy. You don't get mercy. You're gone. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Because he's not talking about earning eternal life. He's talking about enjoying the blessing of God. Look at with me in the sermon again in chapter 7 of Matthew and verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. I think Jesus is talking about the evaluation of the believer's life. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life. You didn't earn it and you can never lose it. But one day you will stand before the judge, Jesus Christ. And the issue will not be your eternal destiny. That's settled when you believe. But will you enjoy all of the blessings of God? Will you receive reward or will you suffer loss? That's what he's talking about. James picks up the same theme. I think some of you have been in Bible study and just went through this passage recently. James writes, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He's speaking to believers. Believers, your lives will be evaluated. It matters how you live your life. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Paul refers to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, whether good or useless and wasted. Our lives will be evaluated. And one of the standards, Christians, when Jesus Christ is handing out reward or we are suffering loss because we realized we didn't live all out as Jesus told us to, one of the standards by which he will judge is, were you merciful to others? Were you merciful to others? I want to be merciful to others because I want to receive mercy. How do I become that kind of person? You know, mercy is um, it's kind of like a muscle, the mercy muscle, okay? And you can grow it or it can atrophy. And the way that you grow it is that you continually set your mind upon and allow your heart to be transformed as you learn to empathize. When you see someone who is in a vulnerable condition that you could ignore or you could take advantage of, you say to yourself, how would I feel if I was in that position? You rehearse that, you practice it. How would I want to be treated if I were in that position? How would I want to people to consider me? And you train yourself to put yourself in someone else's shoes emotionally. What would it be like to be that person? So imagine a scenario. Uh, this afternoon you have to drive down to Houston. As you're driving through Houston, you get stuck at a stoplight. You're in traffic. And there's a guy standing there in the median and he's got a sign written on cardboard and it says, we'll work for food. What comes into your mind? I want, you don't have to confess. I'll just confess for you. I'll tell you what comes into your mind. <laughs> Same thing comes into my mind. Yeah, right. You don't want to work. You want me to open my window and say, how much do you need? And open my wallet and give you cash. That's what you want. And you could work. Look at you. If you can stand outside in the Texas sun all day long, begging for money, you can work. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. That's, at least that's my you know, kind of knee-jerk response to that situation. So I try to back myself up, and I, and I say to myself, how would I feel if I were in that situation? How would I want others to respond to me? Put their heads down and ignore me? How, how would I feel? Imagine just for a moment that maybe this person can actually work. They're strong enough to work. What happened in this person's life to get them to the point that they have so little dignity they'd rather stand by the side of the road holding up a cardboard sign begging for money than to go get a job because they're that beaten down by life and their mind is that bent that this is better than going and getting a job and providing for myself. What happened? Probably not the same circumstances that I've lived through. Or maybe I don't know everything and maybe that person can't work. It could be that I don't know everything. I should consider that once in a while. You know, I lived in downtown Dallas when I was going to seminary. The seminary is right in, in the heart of downtown Dallas, right near there. And I lived very close. I lived in a very bad neighborhood for quite a while. It made my parents very nervous. And we had people knocking on our door, asking for money all the time. It wasn't just, you know, as we're walking on the street. We'd have people literally coming to our door, asking for money and stuff. And it drove me crazy. I got so tired of it because it was always the same story. You know, it's always the same story. My car ran out of gas. It's parked right over there. My buddy's waiting with the car. I just need a little bit of money so I can put gas in my car because my daughter's sick down in Houston. I got to drive down there. It's always the same story. You know, and then if you get into the car with a person, say, well, you know what, let me go with you. I'll drive you over to your car 
so we can get gas in it. You turn here, turn here. Man, my car moved. You mean the one that ran out of gas? Yeah, that one. I would just get so frustrated with that. I remember one time I was walking across uh, downtown. I had, had a job there in downtown for a while. I'm walking across downtown, and this guy comes up to me and goes, Hey, man, my car ran out of gas. And I turn and I go, You do not own a car. <laughs> Literally, I go, You don't own a car. You've never had a car. It's not out of gas, and the tires aren't flat, and your buddy's not waiting for you there in that car. You don't own a car. That's not very wise thing to say. <laughs> I, I lived through that experience. I did, you know, it wasn't wise, let alone merciful. But that's what I thought in my mind. So imagine instead, when you see this person holding up the sign or asking for money, imagine that instead that you, you put in your car or you put in your pockets a, a gift certificate to McDonald's. I don't want to give you cash because I know you're going to spend it. But I could give you a gift certificate. One guy, I remember, I, he asked me for money and I said, no, but I'll buy you lunch. So we walked over to McDonald's and I bought him lunch and he hadn't eaten anything in three weeks. Just been drinking. No food. So he took about a bite of the hamburger and he couldn't eat the rest. But we sat and we talked and, you know, I heard some of his story. The problem was that um, his mind didn't work right any longer. But when you're sitting that close to the person and you're understanding more of their circumstances and you're smelling their smell and thinking about how they're living and stuff, it transforms your whole attitude and perspective. Parents, we can teach our children to be merciful or we can teach them to be completely self-centered. You know, and it's not, it's not real complicated. Um, they come home from school and they have such and such an event to tell you and they're beginning to rail on this person or that person in class and you listen and listen. Huh, I wonder, honey, how would you have felt if that had happened to you? What do you think might be going on in their house that makes them react like that? I, just, you know, you just begin to drop those lines and you just do it and you do it over and over and over again. You begin to train them to stop and step back and say, what if that were me? I've been with people counseling whose parents have trained them to be absolutely completely self-centered and never think of someone else. Clinically, it's called narcissism. It's just the flesh. That's the natural bent of the flesh to just think of ourselves. So this is a step towards spiritual maturity when we train our minds and our hearts to put ourselves in the other person's position. You know, I think I've been following Tiger Woods' situation. And he's just, he is a perfect illustration of someone who's trained by his parents to just think of himself. Can you imagine growing up and your dad tells you, you're the Messiah? If you're actually the Messiah, I guess that's not a bad thing. You know? But if you're not, and you hear that day after day, and then your dad gets interviewed when you go on the pro circuit and says, yeah, my son, he's Messiah. It's not just about golf. He's going to change the world. Well, then you spend your whole life just thinking about yourself, and you don't consider how do my actions affect other people. I'm the Messiah. We train ourselves or we train others to feed the flesh and self-centeredness or to look at others with mercy and compassion. Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how to be like God. And God is full. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. And if you want to be full like him and blessed like him, be like him. Become merciful. Become merciful. Next, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
for they shall see God. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word for pure means uh, literally clean. We get the word catharsis from it. Those who are cleansed. The first thing he's talking about here is, is moral purity, which is, is not perfection. But those who are cleansed. Every single one of us will sin, but when we sin, do we listen to the convicting voice of the Spirit, confess, and say, Jesus, I have sinned. Father, forgive me because of what Jesus did. I belong to him. Well, then we're cleansed continuously. Okay? We will fail. We will sin. But do we listen to the voice of the Spirit and let God cleanse us continuously? Blessed are the pure in heart. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalm, Psalm 24 and verse 3. David was a man who had big sins, right? And when I read about David's big sins, I say, oh God, thank you that I was not David. So all of my stuff would just be laid out here for all generations to read about. Hey, learn from David. Oh gosh, learn from Brian and all the mistakes he made and the things he thinks in his mind. I'm so grateful that I'm not David, but I am thankful that God recorded it so I could learn something from it. David was not sinless. David was not perfect, but he's called a man after God's own heart because his heart is so sensitive to the things that God is sensitive to. So when David is convicted of sin, he hears the voice of the spirit. He responds quickly, doesn't he? Psalm 24 verse 3. David writes, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? That is, who may have intimacy with the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Turn to Psalm chapter 51, verse 6. This is the psalm that David wrote after his... Adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband and experiencing God's conviction and forgiveness. Verse 6, he says, You desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That is those who are pure in heart. Not those who are perfect, but those who listen to the voice of the Spirit. And just like that, that mercy muscle, they train themselves to listen to God's Spirit and quickly confess. That's part of what Jesus is talking about. I think the second thing that he's saying is a a person who's pure in heart has an undivided heart or is undivided in their love. Their heart's not split or as James talks about, the person who is double-souled. They're stuck in Romans 7 and haven't moved on to Romans 8. They delight to do the law of God in the inner man, but they also see this war that's being waged internally inside of them, and they're not sure what they should listen to, and they haven't committed themselves to saying, I will battle. I will do warfare so that I can walk faithfully with God. I haven't made that commitment yet. They're double-souled. Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart or who, whose hearts are undivided. And then he offers this reward. He says, Because they will see God. 
It's ever struck you as strange they will see God? How can you see the invisible God? How is that possible? Whom no man has seen or can see. What's he talking about? Well, I hope that you've noticed as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount that there's this consistent theme of condition and then reward. Condition and then reward. Throughout the whole sermon, if you want to turn back there with me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, in speaking of persecution, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. That's the word uh, misthos. It's a, a wage being paid back to you. Reward. Reward is everywhere in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2, at the end, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 4, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then it's in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 16, in verse 18. Verse 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It is natural and normal that you want to be rich. Just be rich at the right time and in the right way. God is offering reward. Go after everything that God has to offer. Reach out and take it and grab it. But it's not the way that the world says you can earn it. Store up treasure, but treasure that lasts forever. And in particular, he says here, blessed are those who are pure in heart because they will see God. What's he talking about? Well, if you notice throughout scripture, there are certain people that God selects and they get to see more of God, so to speak. God opens their eyes to understand more than other people understand. God reveals more of himself than others get to see. Moses sees God in a burning bush. It's not God in his form, but he he has a greater revelation of God and his wonder and his glory and his majesty. And I read that and I say, I want a burning bush. He goes up on the mountain, he gets 40 days alone with God. And we know that there's more that God told him than just what he wrote down here because that didn't take 40 days to write that down. So there are things just between Moses and God that no one else got to hear or see or experience. I want that. I think to see God means that God expands your capacity to understand him and appreciate him and enjoy him. He stretches your heart and your mind to appreciate more of who he is because you're pure in heart. I think that's the essence of that reward. Let me give you an illustration of it. So imagine that you go to the Olympics and you're part of a relay team. First person runs their leg of the race. And it's a blistering time. They, they, they put your team way out in front, so far out in front that you as the second person on the team, you realize, you know, we, we got a nice cushion lead here. I don't really have to give it all. I don't, I don't need to kick. I don't need to push. I don't need, I don't need to do it. I can cruise. I can wave. My family, they're watching me. Hey, I'm running in the Olympics. But you're so distracted by so many things, but by the time you hand it off to the third runner, your team's behind now. So the third runner kicks in and really pushes it really hard, makes up ground. Fourth runner takes the baton, pushes it really hard, 
crosses the finish line, you, your team just barely wins. You get the gold. The medal ceremony, there you are standing with your other three teammates. You're standing on the highest platform. A gold medal is placed around your neck. It's kind of a hollow victory, isn't it? It's a little bit difficult to fully enjoy the moment. Why? Because you know you didn't give it all. Your teammates know you didn't give it all. The coach is looking at the split times. He knows you didn't give it all. There you are with your gold medal, but it's a little bit difficult to enjoy it. Jesus is telling us on the Sermon on the Mount, give it all. I promise you, God will bless you. He will reward you. He will make it worth the sacrifice. Give it all. As we close, we're going to have an opportunity to share communion together. Communion is a reminder to us that Jesus gave it all. He wasn't holding anything back when he was hanging on the cross. He gave it all. And that sacrifice is worthy of us turning around and say, Jesus, all that I have to offer is my life. I I give it all. I want the richest and the best. I want the treasure that moth and rust cannot corrupt. I want all that you have to offer, and so I give all. So as men come forward in service, let's just take a few moments and ask the Lord to penetrate our hearts and maybe bring conviction. Are we holding back some area of our lives where we need to give all? After the men's service, we'll wait until everyone's served and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is a reminder for you Uh, Every time you gather together and you break bread together, it reminds you that uh, my body was broken as a result of your sins. It's a reminder that I held nothing back, but I gave you my all. Let's take the bread together. Then Jesus took the cup in the same way. He said, this cup represents my blood, the sacrifice of my life to pay for your sins, holding nothing back so that all of your sins forever could be forgiven. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you that you held nothing back in your mercy toward us. But you gave us your son. You gave us what was most precious to you. Jesus, we thank you that you held nothing back, that you didn't turn back in the garden as you faced the cross. But you submitted your will to the will of the Father and secured for us life that lasts forever. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. It gives us life. Now I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Let's stand and sing the second verse. For nothing good. 
Jesus, you gave it all, you paid all for us, and sacrificed all. So this morning, we commit ourselves again to living lives that are, are worthy of the sacrifice that you have paid for us. And we give you all again. We thank you, Father, that you have promised your richest blessings. I pray, Lord, that we would trust you, even when it seems paradoxical, it seems counterintuitive that those who are poor spirit would be rich and those who mourn would be comforted and someday filled with laughter. Those who are persecuted can rejoice. But we trust you that this is the way the world works and this is the pathway to finding the greatest life, the life that is blessed. Father, we thank you that Jesus secured that for us. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Now, before you leave, you may have noticed we didn't get through all the Beatitudes because I didn't want to rush So next couple weeks, we're going to pick up the last two. So if you want to read uh, back through the Beatitudes and then through verse 16, you'll be ahead. God bless you. We'll see you next week.